listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast UK, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Rob Wall. I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today I'm your host. Today I'm joined by Martin Simpson, Lee Newcomb, Rob Green and Matthew Ferguson to discuss operational resilience. Before we delve into the topic in more detail, um, let's go around the room with some introductions. So Martin, do you want to kick us off with a brief introduction? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, hi everyone, Martin Simpson. Um, I'm a principal with the 324 Consultancy. Um, I've been working in the field of um, operational resilience or cyber resilience or technology risk uh, really since the beginning of my career, which uh, which started at GE Capital about 22, 22 years ago. Um, since then, I've I've spent um, a number of years in in different consultancies, um, big four like PwC and 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 Deloitte um, for most of my career. And um, yeah, I'm very excited to have recently joined up with some former colleagues uh, at 324, and, and we're a we're a specialist um, cybersecurity cyber resilience um, organisation. Here's Martin Lee. Uh, Lee Newcomb. I'm a director in the cybersecurity practice at Capgemini. Uh, Probably a similar kind of life cycle and security to Martin. I've sp- spent two spells with the two different big four. Uh, currently in my second spell at Capgemini. Usually work as the security lead in big transformation programs. So I'm currently with a big government department where I've been for the last two years. Uh, outside of my day job with Capgemini, I've been involved with the Cloud Security Alliance since about 2010. And probably a vaguely unusual thing, I'm also on the editorial board of the Springer Journal of Cloud Computing. So I get to do a little bit of playing in academia as well as the uh, the day job. Thanks, Lou. Great stuff. Uh, and uh, Rob, too? Hi there. Uh, I'm Rob Green. I'm the head of resilience and cybersecurity at Close Brothers Asset Management. Uh, we're part of the wider Close Brothers group. Um, I, I feel a bit left out. I've, I've not worked for the big four uh, before. Uh, I'm, I'm not from the consultancy side. I've, I've kind of always been uh, in organizations running their uh, cybersecurity and resilience teams. Um, I, I've done a lot of work in on the risk side of things as well as the sort of application first line side. I've uh, been involved with kind of operational resilience in its current guise since uh, since the sort of foundation of the uh, of the discussion papers a few years ago. So. Uh, you know, I feel like I've spent a long time talking about this now. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Uh, finally, Matthew, come to you. Hey, everyone. Um, so I'm Matthew Ferguson, head of cybersecurity at MO. Uh, we're Europe's first fintech to build um, an SFR investment platform. So we facilitate a more ethical and, and environmentally friendly way for investors to get involved in the retail space across Europe. Um, it's a really interesting uh, company doing some really interesting things, particularly given the uh, macro events going on in the UK markets at the moment. So, <laughs> all well. Fantastic. Okay, now we're introduced and we'll move on to the topic. Um, so you all have a question or statements on operational resilience. Uh, as usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to uh, pose your question and the reason behind it. Uh, and we'll give each of you an opportunity to give your take on the situation. Um, so we'll, we'll start with Martin. Martin, do you want to uh, pose your question? Yeah. Sure. Um, I think the the question really that that I I wanted to pose and discuss with the group was um, was why does operational resilience matter outside of financial services? So, you know, as Rob Rob picked up on um, in his intro, there clearly the, the the term operational resilience was was triggered through you know through the discussion papers um, that was that were issued by the by the joint regulators, joint UK financial services regulators, uh, a few years ago. 
and consequently uh, a lot of the energy and the work has been focused um, within financial services. Um, but you know, so so it's been interesting, certainly in my advisory capacity, to talk to organisations outside of FS around again around resilience and and why does that matter? And typically, if you if you speak to oil and gas or pharmaceutical type organisations, um, they they kind of um, you know, they're they're interested in the topic as well. But but as you move into um, you move into other sectors, it becomes more of a you know, more concerns around costs and what does resilience really mean? So so I guess my um, I guess my thoughts on 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 this, and be really keen to hear what other people think as well. Is is you know, re resilience is an outcome, right? Which is to to kind of pa paraphrase what the what the regulators say as well. But 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 why wouldn't that outcome give you competitive advantage? So in the event of a systemic incident, so a piece of malware, for example, and and I've already fallen guilty or fallen foul of my my pet hate, which is when we talk about operational resilience, we always end up talking about a cyber incident as the as the see Rob nodding nodding violently in agreement there. But we always end up sort of zooming in on a on a cyber attack as the as the trigger for the disruption which causes you know operational resilience challenges, right? Or, or, or triggers the operational resilience set of processes. But but you know I've always sort of firmly believed from the beginning of getting involved in in this topic that if you're if you're able to recover fast so again to to use some of the words that, that are familiar to people that might have read the discussion papers if if you're able to absorb withstand absorb and recover from that disruption if you can do it before your competitors then isn't that isn't that giving you a competitive advantage so does it really matter whether you're in financial services or not surely being resilient and able to respond quickly is, is the right thing to do for any organization um, even when no one's looking and you haven't got the regulator breathing down your back so um that's my opening sort of statement i hope that was kind of in line with what you expected rob yeah thank you thank you uh lee welcome to you yeah i think i've probably got three different strands in response to that one uh so i mentioned i do lots of work in government so i've done lots of stuff with cni so when you start thinking about critical national infrastructure when you start using the terminology of the fca around intolerable harm there's going to be quite a lot of intolerable harm if CNI goes down. So it's, there's some direct parallels there with uh, government and public sector stuff. A more philosophical strand to it is, for a long time within the cyberspace, we've talked about that the triad, confidentiality, integrity and availability, but it's nearly always focused on confidentiality. And again, when you go down that CNI route, it's really the availability that you're interested in. So again, that kind of morphs towards resilience. So I am kind of keen to see more driving of cyber towards that operational resilience mindset. Uh, and the third one is, again, we've kind of touched on it, but we live in uncertain times. So we've had a, a COVID-19 global pandemic. We've got lots of effects of uh, climate change. So I think earlier this year, we saw a, a cloud data center go down due to extreme heat. Uh, so again, that kind of uncertainty that we're living with at the moment is all going to drive folks, no matter what sector, towards resiliency. Uh, and going back to your point on competitive advantage, I think survival is key to that, actually, as an organization. So making sure that all your stuff uh, stays up and running. So those are those are my three responses on that one. That's it. Uh, and Rob, welcome to you. Yeah, sure. So I think I'll pick up on something, you know, Lee mentioned there about harm. And I think for me, the way that you've posed your question, Martin, I would I would see it more as avoiding harm to your customers and your clients rather than competitive advantage, which obviously I'm not downplaying, but I think 
one of the things I always try and anchor operational resilience with is avoiding that, that customer client harm. And I would say that for anyone who's outside of financial services, obviously everyone's got customers and clients. So you should be considering operational resilience from, you know, avoiding providing harm to them, um, ensuring that you can deliver what you say when you say you're going to do it. And I think obviously, you know, Matthew mentioned about sustainability and, and ethical uh, investing. I think if you're looking to be ethical and sustainable and all of that stuff, resilience plays a key part in that as well, in avoiding harm and making sure that you don't have to do things that you wouldn't want to do to keep running. So competitive advantage, yes, but I would also really consider it from the point of view of ensuring you, you're not harming people. Thanks, Rob. And um, finally, come to you, Matthew. Yeah, so Martin, I think you're pretty spot on. Um, cyber incidents aren't the only contributor to the need for operational resilience, which now that I think about it might be a bold statement for a cybersecurity podcast, but here we are. Um, so yeah, like natural disasters, system failures, sudden changes in consumer behavior or market conditions, they can all test a business's ability to be resilient and carry out their critical operations um, whenever they don't have a specific business continuity plan set out for that. So the ability to have layers of resiliency built in, communication between different critical teams, not having services and systems too tightly coupled that you can get a cascading failure. Um, I, think it, I think it's an incredibly relevant discussion across the board and outside of financial services. I think operational resiliency is just sounds a lot more catchy than business continuity. Um, and I think that leads to opening a lot of conversations with traditionally business oriented stakeholders. Um, I find, and to your point about competitive advantage, I think that um, I think that perspective is very effective when working with stakeholders that are product leaders, um, being able to talk to them about um, some of the priorities that they have in their backlog or some tickets that they have coming up for their engineering work streams, being able to say, this isn't a compliance issue, this isn't a cybersecurity issue we're talking about. This is about me giving you advice as the cybersecurity or the risk or the GRC person. I want your product to be able to transact more during the year than our competitions. And I want our customers to have a much better experience than our competition. I want just there always to be that maintained level of service. So I think it's I think it's actually really critical for businesses that have um, business to consumer relationships, and that probably leads into a little bit about Rob uh, was saying about making sure that we don't cause any harm whenever we're working and with our products and everything else. Particularly if you're working on um, something that's tied closely to utilities, I suspect operational resiliency is going to be pretty key for those product leaders as well. Great, thank you, Matthew. Okay, great. Um, we'll leave. We'll come to you next for your question. Yeah, just before I ask that, I was going to come back to something that Matthew said there about the terminology and kind of operational resilience maybe sounds a bit, maybe a bit sexier than business continuity. Uh, but I, I'd actually kind of see it as a bit of a middle ground as well, because if you start mm. going down that utilities route, you talk, start talking about safety critical things. And then cyber's always had very traditional kind of risk assessment approaches. Maybe operational resilience is somewhere in the middle and might be some kind of sweet spot eventually. Uh, yeah, I definitely think yeah. so. I mean, the, the way I try to split it out when I explain to people not into risk or not into cyber is you have a lot of, um, you have a business continuity state. And whenever you go into the business continuity state, you're usually leaning on a preordained plan that you've set aside and you've maybe tested. But operational resiliency is the 
practice of improving the way the organization works so that it can better withstand the unknown. I think that's the key. I think I think that's the key phrase there, right? I think that's where you differentiate from traditional BCP and ITDR, and and you talk more. You, you talk about pure operational resilience. It's about that ability to to withstand and absorb a disruption. Maybe not 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 services don't stop. They might slow down. They might reduce in volume. You know, and and I think this is where where they talk about impact tolerances as opposed to um as opposed to risk appetite which i think is you know is a you know is a powerful distinction so i i, I tend to agree with you Lee. i think there is a yeah, there's a middle ground that i think if you get as far as bcp i.e services have stopped and you need to invoke your dr plan or you need to invoke your business continuity plan you've 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 kind of failed to be resilient right the, because the business has stopped being resilient is about taking the punches um and 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 still being able to go go on and and the more you you know to carry that analogy on, the more an organization trains, the more it considers its threats and its risks, the more punches you could absorb before you actually fall over. And I think that's that's a key component. You look at the current um, uh, papers out at the moment from the regulators around the scenario testing. You know, I think that's why that's a real real crux of, of what makes operational resilience a little bit different. Apologies for diverting you there. I'll ask my question. So my, my question is, uh, will compliance with operational resilience regulatory requirements actually drive the right security outcomes for individual organizations? Is the cost of more fragile individual services a price worth paying for a more resilient system overall? And that's kind of going a little bit systems thinking in terms of the enterprise, the sector, the nation. And where that question comes from is we've done some work with some fairly large financial services organizations over the years. Some of their original cloud strategies were to go all in on one cloud provider, and now they're not. They're being driven towards more hybrid and multi-cloud solutions, sometimes with the idea of workload portability, which brings in extra complexity around Kubernetes and containers and all that malarkey and complexities not traditionally the best friend of security so that's kind of what's driving that question there is is fragility in individual services a price worth paying for stronger sectors and um, rob we'll, uh, we'll come to you first sure yeah so interest in the word fragility being used in in conjunction with resilience there because uh, uh one would expect that's what you're trying to get away from i think i think it's interesting that that is the that seems to be the, the kind of natural response for people in our field to be drawn to, which is solve the problem with more systems or solve the problem with systems resilience. Now, I've been having a lot of sort of back and forth at, at the moment with, with sort of my, my bosses internally about conceptually, we have operational resilience vulnerabilities or, or you know, barriers to, to our resilience of our services. And let's try not to look at it as a as a systems resolution don't try and throw systems at it instead look at really what what are reasonable workarounds and you know i think martin you mentioned about does the same volume still have to come through that service in order to maintain ex expectations and, and avoid harm can you tune it down can you do something else can you put it outside of hours can you do you know what can you do because we want to avoid that exact same thing, Lee, of going, hey, let's just chuck some resilient service in there because we can flick a switch and it will go around to there. But then the thing is, what happens when the person who 
put that in, tuned it, tweaked it. It's never been used. They've left the organization and nobody knows about this and you're paying money for a, a bit of fragility, uh, to use your term, that, that, that is, is not useful. So I think my, my answer to that would be to, where possible, try to think out systems um, uh, because there, there's, there's sort of a lot of solutions in that space too. Martin, what you? Yeah, I think look, I think I'll I'll just build on some of what Rob said there as well. I, I so it's a really good it's a really good question because you know in some ways I'm sort of smiling thinking well fragility does that mean you know if it's that fragile can I then quickly you know can I quickly throw it away and rebuild it right and reuse it uh, reuse something else um, and that then then makes me think about the principles of substitution which is a key part of um, the operational resilience thinking as well is that you know bring in bring in a substitute service or substitute provider. I, I think I think if we were look at, to look at this in isolation then the technology and, and cyber within technology is just one of the pillars of, of what makes up operational resilience. So if you look at people and process facilities and, and third parties, you know, can you can you increase the inherent resilience of a fragile system through one of those other pillars would would be possibly one of the first questions, um, first questions I would ask. And then and then I hate to kind of put put this these words out there but then I think there's an element of it depends right and and let me give give bring us life with a real example so I, I did some work in in China a few years ago and was working with a big European um blue chip that had had quite a big presence there and we were talking about data center resilience um sorry the back office resilience but linked to a linked service services data center and um and and they weren't sort of where really where I expected them to be and 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 the head the head guy over there just said, oh no, but you don't understand. This is China. We'll we'll just bring everyone in, and they'll do it manually until everything stands back up, right? Uh, and for as a as a younger younger consultant, that was quite an interesting you know response. In that you know I'm as a technologist, I'm drawn to a technology or a system solution, but in an in an in an environment where manpower is cheap, frankly, or, or human power is cheap, um, you know, actually that was a, that was a viable solution to making something resilient. So um, yeah, good good question. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. So I. I I've spent most of my career either in fintechs or heavy software engineering companies. And while working in security positions, I've been, I think I've been really fortunate to work with a lot of really great DevOps leaders because the way that they work and the way they focus on microsystems or even large scale systems, they really want to monitor everything. They really want to plan for scale and they focus on making a lot of microsystems that are really robust. And the idea of fragility in an individual system, because there's so many failovers, because there's backups and everything else, the idea of a fragile component isn't as great a concern, I feel like, for them, because they can monitor everything. They've got plans to put things back in place. They can just go back to what was previously documented in Terraform. And I think it's just interesting going through um, sort of this series of questions that you've rolled up into sort of one big question. Um, and then I've sort of started thinking about the next part about will compliance improve, shortening it down, will compliance improve business resilience? I think, again, it depends. It really depends on the interpretation, uh, capacity available, budget available, and really how that individual business is in terms of maturity for their risk management. I think, that, I think that's really what it comes down to, because if they're still looking at 
okay, we've got risk management over here, we've got cybersecurity over there, everything's fine. Like we all know that cybersecurity is a subset of risk management to a very large degree. So I think will compliance drive better operational resiliency? I think it, it really depends on the business leaders and how mature they are with risk management. Yeah. I think for, for me, I think there's a question of the lenses that get supplied to this. I think traditionally you, you may see business continuity as being kind of inward focused, whereas operational resilience and that focus on intolerable harm is maybe for shifting the focus elsewhere. And I think maybe some of the larger organizations at this point are still doing that inward focus. So rather than focusing on reducing intolerable harm at the out at the edges, they're still focusing on can we keep all of our systems up and running? Mm -hmm. Uh, and doing it the old fashioned way. So I think there will be an evolution, but I think it might take a bit of time before people do start thinking in terms of intolerable harm at the edges rather than keeping systems up at the center. Yeah, you're you're describing a different perspective of um, what if server X and system X go down versus with operational resiliency, what happens to our customers or our dependents or our suppliers outside if we feel um, in the pursuit of operational resilience. I think that's a really interesting way of considering it. Yeah. Stuff. Anything further on that point you would like to add? Okay, and well, Rob, we'll come to you for your question, please. Sure, yeah, so I think I'm, we're really fortunate that we've done a lot of work in, in the op-res space and, you know, we're we're looking pretty good in terms of how we can carry on operating and we've done a lot of testing and, and things like that to give our clients a lot of assurity that that we're in a good place. One place where there's definite need for improvement is around the third parties and our, and our third parties where they are um, playing critical parts of our important business service delivery. Now, in my time in, in cybersecurity, I've never really had a problem with third parties going out to them and saying, you know, can I have information about penetration tests? Can I have your security certifications? Can you tell me, you know, basically any security events you've had and anything that's open that's that's not been closed? When you ask similar questions of operational resilience, you know, can you support our impact tolerance times? Can you provide us process maps? Can you do X, Y, Z? You I need to be careful what I say, you appear to get stonewalled a little bit and I don't know whether that's, they don't know, they're not ready to share, um, it, it's not well understood. Um, and I know there are kind of discussion papers out there at the moment, you know, you've got the, the, the joint discussion paper um, from the FCA, PRA and Bank of England on, on critical third parties and I believe the Treasury have done one also, um, which look great, but I think the question in general is, do we think that the, the regulators should be sort of giving us a bit more teeth in what we can ask our critical suppliers in terms of operational resilience to, to remove these blind spots that we potentially got um, trying to sort of fulfill our obligations? Thanks, Rob. Uh, Matt, we'll come to you first. Yeah, so I was actually, so, I read this one in advance and I thought it was really interesting and I actually want to, Rob, I'm not going to surprise you, I looked at your profile before we uh, all got on this podcast 
I actually wanted to turn the question around to you and ask what is it you're sort of specifically looking for from the regulators in terms of support? Because I agree, I've had exactly the same experience. Can you show me your last pen test, your last vulnerability management scan? No problem. It seems to appear, you know, within five days or so. But whenever you ask them if we suffer X or Y, will you be able to restore in this sort of time? Will you be able to support us with this kind of um, unforeseen event? It's all, it's not even just getting stonewalled. It's almost silence sometimes. It's like you've asked a really, really impertinent question that they're not prepared to ever discuss. Um, but, but given your expertise in the field, I wanted to ask you directly instead, what is it you would be hoping to get from the uh, regulators in the forms of new teeth or what have you? So uh, looking at the looking at the discussion paper I, I, I referenced just there, I think it, it's it's going in the right direction in terms of the, the the regulatory bodies are saying, you know, if we get enough complaints, you know, paraphrasing, if we get enough complaints about a, a supplier, we will go to them and we will say, you know, you really should look at this this data mm. and we can ask you for that data. But I think it's kind of you know we as as firms or you know um you know or consultants to firms are being asked for a lot of detail and i mean a hell of a lot of detail in terms of self-assessments and important business services and impact tolerances and maps and tests and all of this stuff surely the regulator should be saying to critical third parties or sizable third parties you also need to have this available and this needs to be available to your customers when they want it so that they know how they can support, how you can support their important business services. Because it feels a bit harsh that, you know, companies mm -hmm. of smaller sizes are having to bend over backwards, but then the, these big pervasive companies can just not answer the question. So I, I don't know. I may be being totally unfair and there may be people listening to this who will go, well, we have to do it too. But I guess it's it's not quite filtering down to to um, us at a smaller level at this time. Mm, fair enough. Would you be thinking something, sorry to monopolise, but this will be my last bit on it. It's just really interesting. Um, so would you be thinking of the regulator implementing a financial penalty if a particular critical supplier continues to refuse everyone or maybe... Um, the same way you would uh, mark uh, a security like a bond with a triple A or a double B rating or something like that to indicate its um, safety, perhaps suppliers getting a rating from the FCA to say, actually, you're you're very critical to a lot of businesses. We're going to give you a pretty poor score because you're refusing to um, respond to any of this stuff. I, I think I think that's spot on. Right. I think you, you see there are lots of kind of shared payment services and things like that, which have got yeah. open registers of how well you comply and, and how trustworthy you are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Why not? It kills two mm -hmm. birds with one stone. They don't have to respond to everyone. There's an open register of of kind of what we can expect in terms of recovery and and um, uh, and I guess resilience. So that's a great, it's a great point, Matthew, and something I hadn't considered. Thanks. Martin, Yeah, sure. So again, another another really good, really good question. Um, 
I think I think the, there's a couple of ways. There's a couple of ways I, I would look at this, and um, I think the you know the, the the perimeter or the regulated perimeter has been up for debate for quite some time now, right? So you know certainly as FS organisations move towards the cloud and you know other other services that weren't immediately obvious with to, to sort of be be regulated, you know, but were critical to the delivery of, of financial services products. You know, where do you draw that line? And I'm not going to pretend to to know the answer to that. I think what what I will think, and and I'll sort of re reflect in, in this twofold, and it, and it ties together some of the other comments that that have been made. Um, I think I think sharp teeth in compliance might set the wrong might set the wrong the wrong behaviours. Um, uh, and I, you know, I'll, I'll quote my quote my old dad, who was a who was a police officer for 35 years, and you know, we we police in this country with the consent of the public, right? If we try to police our third parties and the financial services, you know, and other other industry segments without at least some level of consent, you just get resentment, and therefore it's not done it's not done properly, right? So I think there needs to be some level of 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 consent from um, from the organisations involved to comply within the spirit, right? I think something I said at the beginning of my question was um, at the be um, was you know, around um, uh, was around doing the right thing when no one's looking. And I think if you're a critical supplier to um, to financial services or indeed any other type of industry segment, you know, if you're not doing the right thing when no one's looking in terms of being resilient and being able to provide those services to avoid harm to your suppliers, your customers, then you're probably not doing the right thing. And consequently, therefore, market the market forces will take over. But ultimately, organisations going to vote with their feet, right? If if people aren't compliant or aren't providing you what you need as an organisation, you'll go to the You'll go to the next one, right? You go to the next supplier, and I think it comes back to that that comment that Rob made earlier as well around harm, right? So if if you if you're if you're concerned that your organisation is going to suffer harm as a consequence of um, a supplier failing or not being resilient, then then you'll probably go and find someone else who gives you comfort that they are resilient, right? So the market forces will will take over. Thank you, Martin. And Lee, come to you. Yeah, I, I think there are, again, a, a couple of strands to this one. So in terms of why you're not getting the responses back from the providers, I think they probably don't understand the question. I think operational resilience is still a little bit new to folks who are used to talking about pen tests, SOC 2, ISO 27001. This is just a whole new lingo for them. Uh, so they're probably not prepared to answer that question because they don't really understand it. Uh, in terms of should the regulators have more teeth, I think the answer is is yes. Uh, I did read through DP3 slash 22 yesterday in preparation for today's event. Uh, and I think some of the, the penalties that they have in there are probably the right ones. So if they if the critical technology providers don't give the information insight they want, then they can be barred from taking on new customers, for example. I think that might be a, a good way of doing it. But I do like Matt's idea of having some kind of, of register of status as well, because uh, as folks say, that will drive custom. And uh, if, for example, we were talking about the three hyperscalers and only one of them, the FCA gives a green light to, and the other ones are bright red, then where do you think all the FIs, all the all the, uh, the firms are going to go? It'll, it'll go to the one that's got the, the green light. So I, I think that kind of register is a, is a good example and a, a good uh, idea. Any further points on that, that particular question? OK, and Matthew, we'll come to you next. Sure. Um, so my question is, um, how has the need for resilience by design 
impacted your cybersecurity uh, transformation projects or other initiatives where you're working with um, different business units like uh, product design or maybe infrastructure, anything like that. Uh, Lee, we'll continue this. Oh, that's not fair. I thought that'd be four. <laughs> Fine. Uh, no, I, I think from uh, from my perspective, it's part of seeing cyber in the round these days. So there's been an awful lot of transformation around cyber in terms of that whole shift left philosophy. And I think building resilience into that whole secure by design part is, is just part of that whole transformation. So we do need to get people thinking about resilience threats when they do their threat modeling to then build that into everything else that we then build. Uh, kind of outages and things uh, should be to the top of the mind as much as those nasty little script kiddies over in wherever they may be sitting. Uh, so just build it into that threat and then trace it through. Uh, from my perspective, I always pitch myself as a security architect and that traceability from requirement and risk through to design and logical physical component is, is key to everything. So this for me is just making sure that we capture that at the outset of a project and take it through. And if we're doing it in a more agile way rather than waterfall, just keep iterating as we go. Thanks, Lee. Rob, come to you. Yeah, so I think you know, the, the answer for this you'd expect from a lot of people would be it, it doesn't really affect um, our, our in-flight projects because, you know, I think if you really look deeply, we've all been delivering things in a resilient way, in a cyber secure way for, for a long time, um, or at least we certainly should have been. So, you know, when, when the concept of resilience by design kind of came up um, here, you know, we, we looked at it and we thought, you know, there's there's no need here to sort of reinvent the wheel and go, hey, look, this is a great opportunity for another checklist and some more KRIs and all kinds of stuff. You look at it and then you go, right, what does resilience by design actually mean? Right. What does what do we actually have to deliver across, you know, everything that we're doing? And if you look at it and you go down that list, what's appropriate for your, you know, what resilience mm -hmm. by design means to your business might, might be different different in, in different organizations. You start going through that checklist and you go, yeah, we already do that. Yeah, we already do that. Yeah, we already do that. And you should get to the bottom of the list and go, do you know what? We're already delivering things mm -hmm. with resilience by design in mind. It's just a different grouping of stuff, I, I guess, is, is, is a really ineloquent way of putting it. So when it came up, I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be, this is going to be fun. But then actually it hasn't changed anything. Um, you know, I, 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 don't get me wrong. We didn't just completely ignore it. We doubled down and we, we checked it and we evidenced it and we, we scored ourselves against maturity. Um, but yeah, I, I would be worried if anybody turns around and goes, you've got to implement this now, because what were you doing before if you weren't uh, already <laughs> doing a lot of the elements? Yeah, so Rob, you've totally hit the nail on the head with this. So I, I read a lot of interesting, sorry, this is a podcast, you can't see me being sarcastic. Um, <laughs> but um, from some very large consultancy firms talking about the importance of resilience by design and their projects and this, that and the other. And I remember reading through it going, surely if you're not building stuff in a resilient way in the first place, you haven't made it to the point where you've got time to read these thought leadership pieces on being resilient by design. 
Um, so Rob, thank you very much. You've made me feel a lot better about this one. <laughs> Martin, we'll finally come to you. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really have much else. I I, I think you know you you should you know, resilience by design is should almost be there by definition, right? I, I guess turn that question around and you know who who makes anything that to be not resilient or not last. Um, and I think you know we've I think over the over the recent years or whatever you know we've started to look more at, at security by design. And I think um, I think if you think about what's you know what's going to cause those disruptions and you know if we're talking about new product development then then you know being building controls and security in throughout the design phase so you know you do dev as we move more to an agile environment transition to from from waterfall you know your security and devops is is much more common now than it used to be I think there's much more discipline and um, governance around agile which I know is kind of slightly contradictory to the to the principles behind it um but but again I think you know I think you've got to look at it as as an outcome right no no one's going to design a product that, that isn't resilient and, and is going to fail quickly so um so I think you know you're I kind of think it's sort of there I don't think there's additional steps needed uh, you know, maybe there's maybe there's a a nod to the you know where does it sit in terms of the important business service you know does it does it roll up into you know into what was obviously or you know what we've heard to as you know critical economic functions if are you putting a product into a place that is you know it's um it's time critical, customer customer initiated, and and a single channel. Then you might want to turbocharge your level of resilience that's associated with it. But um, but I think if if it's secure by design and it's designed well and tested um, before it goes into production, then hopefully it should be resilient. Thanks, Martin. Anyone further points been, uh, Yeah, I think we've all been far too polite so far. So I'm going to try and offend a whole community. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think if you look at some of the traditional cybersecurity risk assessment methodologies, they haven't always been focused towards resilience. Uh, I think there's sometimes been that clash between, I'll, I'll just go to a kind of a CNI example and utilities. So maybe the, the OT community is very much around safety critical, uh, fault tree analysis, all that kind of good stuff. And then you've got the IT side, which is all about really high level uh, cybersecurity risks and if they just focus on those really high level cybersecurity risks they may miss some of these kind of operational resilience considerations that we've been talking about today so I do think maybe where some organizations will be changing will be bringing those two factions together a little bit so they can have that common language around resilience as opposed to the OT style language of risks and failures and then the cyber language of risks and failures maybe this is a, a bridge building exercise as well yeah yeah, I, I, there's definitely a convergence of that going on though right? I mean certainly in the last couple of years I think the conversations I've been having with with client organizations who have big OT environments and it's very often been you know leave OT alone that's you know that's the manufacturing area and let's not let's not kind of get too involved in that um, but but I think now you know nowadays you're seeing more and more organizations think about them you know in in um, it, concurrently because because you have to because it comes back to you know, where's that disruption going to occur if you want to stop mm -hmm. a manufacturing facility from doing what it does you stop it from manufacturing its stuff right and you do that through through attacking or through disrupting the ot um so i think i think that those two worlds are converging sorry rob i cut you off mate. no no it's fine um so I, just on on these points specifically i think we just need to remember also that that 
operational resilience and resilience in general isn't just in cyber or IT or anything like that. Exactly. There's many, there's many elements to it. So it isn't just the response responsibility of us to converge the language. We've got people, facilities, we've got systems, finance, we've got all kinds of supporting resources, supporting capabilities. And you know, I talked before about sort of going down that checklist of things you already do. You know, your HR teams likely ensure that there are contingency plans and succession plans in place. So, you know, when you're building a, a, a new function or a new application or something, you know, you, you do take into consideration how many people are required to operate that. And you don't go, right, there are six people, so we'll hire five and hopefully it goes all right. You know, you will, you will build the resilience around that. Um, the same with your premises, right? Everyone, classic resilience, everyone sort of does generator tests and fire tests and flood tests and all that sort of stuff. So it's not just the cyber side that that is resilient by design. It's all of these areas and that common language you're talking about, Lee, is, it's common language maybe isn't quite right because that language already exists. It's I guess converging it so you go you know that thing you call resilience it's it's actually the same thing as what they call resilience and it's all together and you know we all hold hands and skip round in a lovely circle lovely resilience circle <laughs> I'm semi-serious anything further to add Matthew on that one no, not particularly. Um, to be honest, I'm thinking about the um, the different businesses that we work at, and I'm thinking about the the cost of operational resiliency outside of cybersecurity. How that feels different to a startup. So I thought it was I thought it was interesting talking about um, the idea. You know, there'll be a set uh, agenda for the fire safety test. There'll be a set agenda for this test and this test. And then sometimes when you're at a startup, you don't have the time to make sure that you've got all this right, and that you're doing the monthly test and everything else. Because if you don't get X and Y done, you'll have a challenge with the investors and that <laughs> presents a much bigger risk than the, you know, not being prepared for a fire event or things like that. Um, but yeah, I was just thinking on how operational resiliency might feel different as a requirement outside of cybersecurity for startups. That's where I was thinking. Stuff. And any further points? Anyone would like to add it? Just one general one going back to Martin's point about his uh, work in China where they were just happy to throw bodies at the problem. Uh, I did some piece of work for the MOD uh, a long time ago and they were kind of similar in that because they have lots of uh, lots of soldiers they don't necessarily always need systems to uh, support resilience they can just throw more bodies at it and I think maybe that is something that particularly maybe in the cyber community we need to get better at in that the answer isn't always technology and going back to Rob's point there about these things around buildings and HR and finance some of these things will be solved by people or can be solved by people if you need to avoid those intolerable harms so maybe don't always just go back to systems and complexity Keep it simple. Stuff. 
Thank you very much. Okay, uh, well, I we shall leave it there. Um, so this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Martin, Lee, Rob and Matthew for providing their insights and their topics and thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get involved in our up-and-coming podcast, then reach out to me on LinkedIn or uh, drop an email on robert.wall at evolutionjobs.co.uk and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening.